You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Ted Bell, who's a New York Times bestselling novelist and former advertising executive. He began his advertising career in the 1970s as a junior copywriter and then worked his way all the way up to President Chief Creative Officer of the Leo Burnett Company in Chicago, which is legendary, where he was credited with developing numerous innovative and award-winning advertising campaigns. In 1982, he joined Young and Robicam in London, and in 1991 became the Vice Chairman and Worldwide Creative Director. He's won every award the advertising industry offers, including numerous Clios and Con Gold Lions, and while at Young and Rubicam, the Grand Prix of the Cannes Festival. In 2001, he retired to write full-time. He has 10 consecutive New York Times bestsellers to his credit, probably soon to be 11, including the Alex Hawk series of spy thrillers. The newest in this series is Overkill, and it is out now. So welcome, Ted. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you went from being an exceptionally successful ad exec, uh, worldwide creative directors of one of the most important advertising agencies in the world, to write spy novels. So what, what dro- that's an interesting transition. So what drove you to do that? Well, first of all, I, I've been wanting to be a writer since the third grade. And I actually started writing in the third grade. Uh, so I was, what, eight. And my great passions then were cowboys because I had Hopalong and Roy mm-hmm. Rogers and the Lone Ranger. These are all of my heroes. And, uh, and the other thing I was fascinated with, because it was the 50s, was UFOs. So my, my elementary homeroom teacher used to encourage those of us who wanted to to write stories that she would then pin on the bulletin board and you could take them down and take them home and read them. And then she had a sheet where you could sign in and you'd post a review the next day. So in the third grade, I'm going in early to read my reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't waiting for the Times book reviews. I was waiting for Susie Charlton to say, I like Ted, but I don't like his story. Whatever. And, uh, and so, so, I, so I combined my two loves of, of UFOs and, and cowboys. And so I would have cowboys out on a cattle drive getting abducted by tractor beams from UFOs, lifted up out of their saddles <laughs> and into the UFO. So I had no end of amusement in some 40 years later 
seeing that there was going to be a movie coming out in L.A. called Cowboys at Aliens. Right. I said, how low will they go if they will steal a story idea from a third grader in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who's eight years old? And somebody, you know, read the story. I guess. I don't know. Just kidding. But so that's when I, I started wanting to be a writer. <coughs> and then, but you're asking about spy novels specifically. Well, what, I mean, what drove you in that direction? I mean, I think that... Yeah, I, so I'm, I'm living in a, a small town in the south in Florida where excitement was sticking a playing card in the wheel of your bike so it sounds like a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. That was a huge for me, for all of us. And then following the mosquito sprayers around, the yeah. DTT, riding in these clouds for, for hours on our bikes following these guys. And we love the smell of it. Little do we know. Right. It's like total poison. Yeah. But now I think about all the parents who want the kid to have a helmet, and you know, they, they wouldn't no more have it. But we, we rode around for years in DDT strays, and loved, we thought it was fabulous. Um, so the so the summer I was thirteen, um, I was in Little League, but I was terrible, and I hated it, and I only went because my dad made me. <laughs> all I wanted to do was read. Starting at age six, as soon as I learned how to read, I was in. I was hooked, and. Um, so I would go to, uh, to Little League and just sort of pray for time to be spent alone on the bench, which was a lot of the time. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't like me anymore, and I liked the sport. Um, but the summer I was 13, I read my first Bond book. Just, I don't know, out, out of the blue. And it just, so I, long story short, I read every single Bond book that summer. And it, it really changed my life. It literally did. Because I didn't know where I was going or what. My family was in the banking business. But I, I knew then I didn't want to be a banker. And um, I was flattered to be um, uh, invited to speak at the Reagan Ranch um, about three years ago when they had the year of the spy. So I was the kickoff uh, speaker. And the title of my talk there was How James Bond Saved My Life. Um, and that's accurate, actually, in a weird way. Because who knows what would happen. Right. But I just went from palm trees and lazy sunsets to, you know, uh, bullets, bombs, and babes, you know, and, and, and martinis and Aston Martins and evil villains and the capitals of Europe and the south of France. It just was like, it, like, it was like LSD for me. Right. So, so that's when the seed was planted. And thank God I went into advertising because I got to go to all those places. Right, no. And spent I spent mean, a lot of time in those places with a nice little expense account. <laughs> so for 30 years, right? So that, when we sold YNR in 2001 or two, whatever, I was ready. Well, yeah. and I think you've now been writing the character of Alex Hawk for over 15 years. Right. You know, that, that kind of longevity you only see every so often, whether it's a Jack Ryan or someone like that, or a James Bond. I yeah, mean, do, do you see... As you're writing, because I, I've, because of the job, I've read my share of spy novels. Sure. Uh, some try to be uber realistic, right. and kind of Clancy. in the weeds. Yeah, Clancy, right? Yeah, Everything perfect is perfect example. Per technology, it was a three point like, nine nine right. rifled shell, the seldom ch- used the, outside of the Huey, the Chobham ceramic <laughs> armor and the M1 Abrams. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. And then there are ones like Fleming who write. To have fun, exactly. Do you see Alex Hawk as the Bond of the 21st century? Is I, that kind of in a way? I sort of do, but you know, when I when I sat down to, to create him, I knew that there were going to be Fleming influences, but I didn't want to be. I don't want to have my first critics come out when the book comes out and say this guy's like 
trying to be James Bond. Just a derivative. I, yeah. I was, not a derivative. I didn't want to be a derivative. So I made him an, as far away from James Bond, James Bond's personality as I could be. And I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the story, but if they're not, they're going to enjoy it. When Fleming went to, to Goldeneye to write the first book, um, having had a huge fight with his wife, and I've studied Fleming all my life, huge fight with his wife, and he just couldn't wait to get to their new house in Jamaica. And somebody gave him a golden typewriter. And he's sitting there looking over the sea, and he's trying, he says, I've got to have a name for this guy. So his idea of Bond from the get-go was a bland, and he actually used that word, a bland civil servant. One of the gray men mm-hmm. you see in the halls, but they disappear quickly. That was his notion. So he was looking for a boring name, a bland, boring name. Do you know this story? You already know. They may okay, not. But they so may yeah, not. go ahead. Okay, so he's, he's got his books on the shelf, and he looks up and he sees this book called uh, Seabirds of the West Caribbean by James Bond. He goes, James Bond yeah. sat down in the gloom of the casino at <laughs> whatever. And so that's where he came up with his Yeah, name. an American ornithologist. Yeah, an American James ornithologist. Yeah. There you go. And um, But I didn't want a bland name, so I right. I thought Hawk, you know? Well, the names, I mean, there's no bland name in any of them. No. They're, all, they're all, you read them, and you're like, but, okay. I, there, how, there's a twinkle in your eye when you're coming up with absolutely. these names. How certainly. about this, this, this cowboy at Overkill? Do you like his name? You can't say it on the air. No. No. But yes. yes, I mean I can. We we say shit all the time. Okay, <laughs> so I, but I just love having a character named Shit Smith. Yes, I mean I think shit will outlive all of us. He is the baddest of the bad. Yeah, and and you can see that if you try. Well, let me give advice for anyone who goes out and buys any of these books. If you read it without knowing there's a tongue firmly planted in in the cheek, then you're you're gonna be like, this is what is this? This is so over. No. You, you, I, I hadn't met you before today, but I, I just imagine you writing this, just kind of chuckling to oh, yourself the whole way through. The whole way through. Okay, right. absolutely. I mean, when I thought of that name, Mr. Smith, I was tap dancing around the room. I said, "I got to this thing is the baddest guy on the planet." So one thing I actually found—I mean, I, I'm half joking about kind of the tongue in the cheek, but there's actually some obvious preparation that goes into writing these books. You know, there's locations around the world. There's, there's going back to writing your first book. There's kind of understanding how the spy world works. Um, so how do you prepare for writing one of these? It's not just kind of sitting down and writing off the top of your head. There, there's obvious preparation that goes into this. Well, a couple of things. Um, when I decided that I could not, uh, at the time when I was starting, everybody, uh, all my competitors or everybody was writing about, you know, Al-Qaeda and variations thereof. And um, and they're all doing it. And I just, I can't do it. First of all, I don't like sand. I don't like deserts and camels. <laughs> you don't want to have to go I like do your Ferraris, research in Salah like Yemen. Ferraris, You'd rather go to the yeah. And nude beaches in the southern. That's just yes. me. I just call me crazy. And I can never pronounce all the names. And this is not a, a racist comment. I just, you know, the names are like 15 syllables long. And I just couldn't see myself writing those names. So I said, you know what? Putin. And because um, I was fascinated with the guy. And uh, so I started by just reading biographies and just getting inside his head. Because I knew if I was going to make him a real character, I wanted to feel comfortable saying things and acting like uh, he might under certain circumstances or just be in his head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when that was done, then I went to, um, t- to Russia because to, uh, to, I'd never been. And I just had to see Moscow and St. Petersburg and all these places. You know, not so much for like, oh, there's a restaurant there, but just the feeling of it right. and the street. 
and the, and the, and the, the mood of the place. And, um, and so I did. And um, uh, as a precursor to that story, I'll just tell one other little aside. Um, obviously, you meet people in the community, you know, when you do this kind of stuff. And, and so I had some good friends that were helping me. Um, uh, and, uh, and one of them was a, a professor at, uh, at Cambridge University. And he was a, a, an advisor to me on technical things or political things, geopolitical things, from like the second or third book. So he was a really good friend of mine. And uh, so, so lo and behold, one, like fifth book, or fifth book, sixth book, seventh book, something like that, um, I was doing a book signing in Barnes & Noble on a rainy night, and there he is my friend who was in town and heard about it and showed up, and he had another guy with him. You're going to like this story. I, I know the story, but go oh, ahead. Already I, I, I so, do my research. I know oh, where you're going. It's I didn't a great know story. That, was, uh, that was story was yeah. built. But, uh, and I said, great, uh, nice to meet you. I hope you guys, and I'll, I'll talk to you after the show or something. So I did it and then started talking. And then he said, well, Rich and I are going to go get a bite at Swifties. You want to have dinner with us? He'd love to talk to you some more. I said, yeah, sure, I'd love it. So we go to dinner, have a few cocktails. And the whole time he's asking me about, where did you have this idea of Putin? No, 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 no. How did you, that, that you think the Baltics or you think the, huh, or what, um, is going to be where he's going to go next or whatever. Um, and I said, I just, I don't know, I just make it up. And he said, yeah, that's good, that's good. And then at the end of the dinner, he says to my friend, uh, wouldn't it be fun to have Ted at Cambridge at the political sciences with us? Because he doesn't think the way we do. You know, it would be, it'd be fun. And, and the guy turns out to be Sir Richard Dearlove, who was just recently uh, getting ready to retire, I think, at that point, um, but was still then chief of MI6 and we're going to leave and go be master of Pembroke College, Cambridge. So I went. And, uh, and I, I spent a year. 2011, 2012, and it was spy heaven. Everybody's a spy there. Right. <laughs> Everybody. Well, I mean, that's an interesting concept about bringing in fiction writers because they certainly think a very different way. Yeah, we do. And sometimes people are so caught in kind of the, the formal regimented way of thinking about threats and thinking about yeah. possibilities that they're just not willing to look outside what the box. What are the preconditions? Yeah. Outside, yeah, no. I just go right to the cut to the chase. And, and what, during that year, what was your day-to-day? Like, what, what were you doing? Well, I, you know, I was attending lectures, and I was going up to the Naval College in London to hear, you know, all the Royal Navy guys in one room talking about what's happening in the China, mm-hmm. South China Sea. What are we going to do about it? Um, yeah, I was I was attending lectures, and I was and one of the things I had agreed to do is I would write a book with Cambridge as the setting, and portray Cal, you know the college, and mm-hmm. that was easy to do. Mm-hmm. Oldest university in the world, I think, um, and. It was like wandering around a Harry Potter land, <laughs> you know. I mean, those rooms that go on for a mile with the tables, with right. the candles, and the guy, and that's accurate. Yeah, you know, because every Friday night there's a, a master's dinner, and you're sitting up at a table on a dais, and you're just staring out of a sea of kids are getting so hammered, by the way, <laughs> that they're like falling out of their chairs <laughs> by the end of the night. And. Um, and, uh, and all the masters always said, Ted, I want you to sit next to me at dinner tonight, of different colleges, it's a different college area. And so I was flattered. So I said to my friend, that's really nice, you know, that every time the masters at the, at the, at the cocktail party, at the masters study, say, Ted, I want you. He said, don't, no, 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 don't, don't flatter yourself. I said, well, they do. He said, yeah. You know why? Because all these guys want to be published authors. <laughs> they want to say, can you get the name of your agent? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd say that's true. He was sort of kidding. But it was fun. But I, I just will tell you one moment. I was in a meeting that Sir Richard was speaking in. Um, and what do we call it? Uh, not house rules, but there's a rule 
where it says code of silence, something house rules. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, the Chatham house rules. Chatham house yeah. rules. And and it was a Chatham house rule meeting, and uh, and during and about halfway through the thing, it's a knock on the door, and he opens the door, and there's this guy standing there with these big like pizza-sized boxes, about six of them, and he brings them in and puts them on the table. There's like 12 of us in the room. And so Richard opens the first box, and it's a gold platter, like about twice as big as a basketball. I mean, it's like this big around. And they had been taken for, and from Libya from uh, after, what's his name? was Gaddafi. Gaddafi's yeah. palace <laughs> after they <laughs> took him out, and they sent him to Zurich. <laughs> now, I don't know what he did with him. I'm sure he sent him back to somebody. But he's passing him around the yeah. table. And I'm sitting there. This is like a day after the guy is executed. I said, I'm looking at the guy's plates. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's a little moment of, of uh, Cambridge history for you. No, what's interesting to me, many times talking to authors, because everyone kind of treats their craft in a different way. Some people write and then kind of change things as they go along, yeah. kind of more stream of what direction should I go in. Oh, I do that. Others sit down before they write a single word and map everything Absolutely out right. in every direction. Is that your process? Do you, do you know what the book is going to look like from a skeletal sense? No idea. No idea. I know who the bad guy is. I know who the girlfriend is. And I sure as hell know who the hero is. Yeah. But I'll tell you a quick story. I don't know if, how our time is. but um, So when I first was working on Hawk, which is the first Alex Hawk book, um, I was a neighbor of and, and a good friend of because I'd known him in advertising James Patterson and uh, and he and I played golf a couple times I mean we are pals mm -hmm. and he knew I was writing this book and he said well you know what just when you got the manuscript let me take a look at it so I said I'd love it and he said I'll get it to some people don't worry I said great so phone rings and it's Jim he says can you come over to my house it was like 6 o'clock can you come over to my house for a little while and then I'll talk to you and uh, I said, sure. So I go over there, and he's sitting by his pool or whatever. We're talking. He says, let me ask you a question. Why do you, in your, I'm, I, I like your manuscript, but I have a serious issue here. Why do you go down all these different roads? I said, I like going down roads. Because I don't know where I'm going to end up. Yeah. I like to sit down in the morning and not know where I'm going. And he says, no, 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 listen, you know. Outline, 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 <laughs> which is how he does it. Right. When he writes a book every month or whatever. Well, every day. Or, yeah. <laughs> a book a day. So I said, Jim, that's just not me, man. I just, no, I don't want to do that. So I go and I said, I just told the world's most successful novelist that I, he's wrong about how I should write my book. But, well, but I, I mean, you still have to do some pretty significant preparation. Because yeah, I'm do. reading, when I was reading Overkill, I realized that there was in-depth knowledge of geography, mm -hmm. like random geography, like mountains in Switzerland, the, and in-depth knowledge. The Swiss military. Yeah, Swiss military, and in-depth knowledge of stuff like the Russian political oligarchy and right. And, right. and how the Swiss banking systems and everything like Absolutely. you have to do that ahead of time I would suspect or you just do you stop and say oh crap I need to do some research on this I've gotten I've written my way to a point <coughs> in which I need to stop and make sure I know what the hell I'm talking about I think I have read so much in my life that I retain um, and I certainly do some of that but a lot of it is I read a book in, uh, I don't know, when it came out 15 years ago called uh, La Concorde Suisse de la Pelle. And it was by uh, a, a famous author that I can't remember his name right in a second. But it was all about the Swiss military and jet fighters being stored inside the Alps. I said, oh, I love this. Mm -hmm. So well, I've it's always. It's basically a real life Bond lair. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And now, the, the Bond lair that I created called Falcon's Lair, yeah. I made up. But I based it on Eagle's Nest, yeah. Hitler's, yeah. In, in the Bavarian Alps. And, uh, but, uh, the genesis of Overkill, 
Um, I thought Goldfinger was far and away my favorite. I mean, I love From Russia with Love, like her, but Goldfinger, I just, and the reason I liked it was he, he, he Fleming created such an impossible uh, task for the villain. He's going to rob Fort Knox. I mean, in that era, Fort Knox was considered, oh, your money's as safe there as it is at Fort Knox. I mean, it was, it was just, considered Fort Knox. It was considered <laughs> Fort Knox. So when I see the trailer, and I see that, wait, this guy is going to rob Fort Knox? Good luck with that, pal. Good luck with that. And, of course, he did. I mean, he put everybody to sleep. But remember, he had the gas. Yeah. So I'm thinking, when I was getting ready to write the new one, I said, I would love to, like, top him, you know, and come up with someplace really hard to get the gold out of. That'd be Switzerland. Yeah. Because they've got a million-man army. They've got a massive air force. You know, they, they've in, prevented invasion for, for, like, 200 years. But in the book, my villain, who we know is, I don't know if I should reveal that or not, but it's... Uh, yeah. Oh, I mean, if they've yeah. read the last one. Yeah, yeah. Putin, so Putin, Putin is out of power, and he's been, ch- he's been chased out of the Kremlin by the, by the oligarchs. And he wants to... And the oligarchs have been stealing all his gold. So he says, I'm going to go in there. And I'm, not only am I going to get my own gold back, I'm going to take a little extra. <laughs> and so he's planning and mounts an invasion of Switzerland. And from a cinematic perspective, because I hope and I know that that the, the movie guys love Overkill as a title and they love the plot they haven't read it some of them but be great as a second one uh, because there's going to be a first one let, let, you know we kind of jump the gun a little bit yeah, the, the, you're, there's going to be a first and you know when I'm going to believe that <laughs> when I'm sitting in the theater with the popcorn right. with Victoria honey look it says based on the novel that said, oh they that, that's me they actually did that's when I'll theoretically the book before Overkill has been optioned well not had, no, all, the books, all the books have been optioned by Paramount oh okay so that's all lots of, of potential all movies of them, here. All, okay. of them, all of them all of them and we have a script uh, which I haven't read yet but that's okay it, but this, uh, is the script based on the last book or no is it's it? based on uh, Patriot okay but it's called Hawk because we want the first one to have the title right. of the character so uh, I forgot where I was going with that story, just um, about the, the the character that can't the, the the evil villain that has the impossible task, right? Which in the end, this case, and, and, and the other oh, I know the cinematic quality. So yeah. I I spent a lot, I lived in Switzerland for a while. I mean, I've spent a lot of time there in Zurich and then and um, Lucerne, all those places. And it's such a picture postcard. It's like a fairy tale. Those little villages with the geraniums in the windows, and the, it's just. And I said the idea of armed conflict especially modern armor happening in that country is just too wild to conceive of. You know, dogfights over, you know, yeah. Gutenberg in Switzerland with cows in the field. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, and, uh, and every bridge and every tunnel is wired. Every one of yeah. them. And you show up at a bridge with a tank, you're going in the ravine. I mean, you just, so I mean, it's really an impossible task for him to, to successfully invade but he comes up with an ingenious way of getting that army in there. It was the, mm-hmm. the, the locomotive convention in the right. Zurich rail yard. So he just goes blasting through Europe all night, running barricades and, and blasting his way across. And so anyway, it's, it's, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, you write in, in, in a way where you can easily imagine what's happening. I mean, sometimes yeah. you're reading a book and you've got to struggle to kind of picture what's it. This about? Yeah. yeah. We'll be right back. After this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice, then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. 
Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Is it important to have a really good baddie? I mean, I know that sounds kind of trite as a question, but is there is there a paucity of good bad guys in a lot of the spy novels that have been written since Bond? I mean, you, you, Fleming, Fleming always had the great bad guy, right? Bigger the than villain, life. Bigger than life yeah. villain. And to a degree, you're right that a lot of your, your contemporaries, when you started writing this, were about Al-Qaeda and others, and, and as dangerous as they are. Yeah. There's not a lot of bigger-than-life bad guys. That's right. Is it important for you to kind of come back to that? I mean, Putin is perfect for He's this. He's perfect. Yeah. And now a lot of these guys have moved to Putin. Yeah. You know, you know like Dan Silva's new book is about Putin. But, uh, which is fine. That's great. I mean, it's not, I don't own him. Um, well, but you predated them significantly. I mean, it's been, what, 10 uh, years? 10 years. Yeah, since Yeah, Czar, Czar was the one. T-S-A-R was, yeah, uh, yeah it was 20, 2008. But I think... You know, in, when I was in the days of thinking about how I was going to do this, I just I realized, okay, I've got my hero now. You know, he looks like Errol Flynn, he talks like William Powell, and he's a Royal Navy fighter pilot shot down three times. Blah 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 blah. So I got him. Now I need a bad guy and a girlfriend. I, that's what I do every single time. I say, all right, who's the bad guy? Because <laughs> I can't always go with Putin. No. And I'm definitely not going to do Putin in the next book. But uh, and I need a new girlfriend. Or sometimes a recycled one. A recycled girlfriend. Yeah. But I remember in the first um, in the first one, Hawk, he, I wanted him to have a girlfriend that every, every woman would like, oh, she's wonderful, she's great, she's perfect. And so I created this Victoria Suite, and she was uh, a child psychiatrist from Washington who worked with you know, children who had learning disabilities. And she was also a kind of a Beatrix Potter, children's illustrator and writer of fairy tales, you know, Peter, Peter Rabbit kind of things. Just a wonderful woman. And he loved her. So then when the next book's coming, I was at Simon Schuster then with my editor, Emily. And um, she said, so Ted, in this new book, what are we going to do about Victoria? Not you. Uh, and uh, what are we going to do about Victoria? I said, I don't know, but I have an idea. And, and she said, okay, what is it? I said, well, what if, what if he marries her? And she, and she said, are you out of your mind? He can never get married. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. Bond got married. I know. Yeah. Well, and, and so did Hogg. But <laughs> yeah. and he can, he's a bachelor. That's part of his charm. He's a bachelor. Just keep him as a bachelor. And I, I said, well, I can't have him dump her because then he's a jerk. He's the bad guy. And I can't have her dump him because then he looks like, you know, whatever. So I said, so Emily, what if he marries her but she doesn't quite survive the wedding ceremony? She said, she dies in the church? No, she actually dies on the steps of the church after the ceremony when they're throwing the rose petals and the U.S. Navy guys are there with the cross swords. Mm-hmm. She takes takes one to the heart from a sniper in a tree who's trying to make life painful for Alex Hawk. And so there you go. She said, Ted, that is horrible. 
that is really, really horrible. I said, yes, it is. But is it good horrible or bad horrible? Right. She said, it's great horrible. Do it. <laughs> great horrible. That's great horrible. Like, yeah, oxymoron. The, on the, well, that should be the, on the front of the book. Great horrible. Great horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you one last thing about something that you were involved with, the Defense Orientation Conference Association, mm-hmm. something you've gone on to actually do okay. more with. Can you talk a little bit about DOCA? Because I think our, our listeners might be interested in that program. Yeah, it's great. It's a, it's a standing, not a committee, but a group of, of people from all different walks of life, um, you know, from finance or the arts, like a writer. And, um, and you have to be sponsored. And I was uh, sponsored by a friend of mine, uh, Lieutenant White, in the, who was Coast Guard, and who was a big fan of the books. And um, uh, had read them when he was on, off on assignment or whatever and um he sponsored me and uh and i got in so it's basically people who support the military uh and uh with a passion um and it's a way for us on a on an annual and sometimes more frequently basis to sort of catch up with what's going on uh and my first trip was we had a c-130 hercules at ours 13 of us C-130 Hercules at our disposal for a week. It's <laughs> uh, not exactly first-class travel. No, it's not first-class. No, it's not. It's, it's, yes. The seat is a sling yeah. in the middle of a, of a basketball stadium. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like insane. But our first stop was McDill Air Force Base, where uh, CENTCOM, mm-hmm. where we were going to get to meet Petraeus. Now, it turned out mm, he couldn't make it that day, but we had his number two guy. And then we went to Fort Bragg, and we went to Little River. We spent two days at Fort Bragg where we had a reenactment of a, in a mock village out in the middle of that vast pine forest mm-hmm. around Fort Bragg. And they had Al-Qaeda guys on horseback coming in like, like cowboys and Indians kind of, and running around and around. And we like, were ordered to get into this building and go up to the roof where we had like Marines up, I mean, Rangers up there with, you know. And st- it's like, I'm in the middle of a war. Right. It's like so real. And then they kept saying, sir, they're, they're, they're getting closer. You've got you to get those guys out of there. And so then these Hueys come in, land on the roof, we run, we jump inside, we take off, and the guys are with the 50 cows going, <laughs> it was awesome. Um, and so and we went to, to, to Paris Island and, and, and spent time being yelled at, and they, yeah. did, they just yelled at us the whole time <laughs> we were there. And uh, I mean, we went everywhere. And uh, it's fabulous. And so then you hopefully will go back to your real life and talk about what a good experience you had. And I can tell you, I mean, I spent four days, not through DOCA, but on my own, as a guest of uh, Admiral White on uh, the USS George Washington aircraft carrier for night quals, landings. The people on that ship, the, the Navy personnel, the nicest people I've ever met in my whole life. Unbelievable. Does that help you research-wise? I mean, you certainly have relationships on the British side, as you just talked yeah. about earlier. Does it help your writing? If you've got a question, you can go to an expert. Absolutely, can... absolutely. But not only that, you know, it makes me feel good about the military, and that's yeah. that's what they want us to do. And, and they're succeeding because it's easy to feel good about our military. They're the most amazing men and women on the planet. Um, and then hopefully tell people. I think the reason I got in is because they knew I'm pro-military, and I'm going to talk about that military in a very positive way in my books, and I do. Well, you've decided to focus on a, on a British secret agent and yep. then a British inspector, yep. and then that – was that a conscious decision with kind of the Fleming-esque thing to it, or, or why not a CIA versus an MI6? Um, I, I think it's just, I, because I've lived in England a few times, and I love it. I think it's just, 
I kind of I, I wanted to be there in my head when I'm writing the book. Yeah, my, my worry, like I writing dialogue, like I would just be like, "Hello, governor." Hello, I, mean, governor. I, I would, I would, I would, because you you do have <laughs> pit, kind of pit vernacular of pit, pit yeah, exactly right. You do have vernacular of regions and other things yeah. that people speak in. Yeah. And I know you spend a lot of time there. I've spent some time there, but yeah. I would be terrified that it would almost be a kind of caricature. Well, um, I mean, right. yeah, I think all my the years I spent reading Dickens yeah. and P.G. Woodhouse, I mean, all that's coming out, you know, especially with Ambrose Congreve, Chief yeah. Inspector. I mean, I just know exactly how this guy would talk and act, you know, and plus the time at Cambridge, knowing professors and right and stuff like that. So, yeah, just uh, I, I'm uh, a sponge. Are, are there any real life people that you've based characters on? All that the aren't? time, yeah. Not Shit Smith. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know him. <laughs> But Not yeah. by name, at least. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I do. I I, uh, I think there's a lot of people I've known my whole, and, and, and to some degree, in every sort of character. Um, I've never really known anybody like Alex Hawk, but because um, he's an idealized version of of for me of what the British spy would be. So there are now eleven full-length books, and then I think several I novellas. Think it's ten. So this is the tenth. Yeah, okay. I think Overkill is number ten, and then I have the two young adult historical novels, Time Pirate and Nick of Time, with St. Martin, different publishers, St. Martin's. Uh, but now, now twelve all together, mm -hmm. and um, I'm going to keep writing these things until I go blind. I mean, it's just life. It's like air. Fire. It's air to me. It's really fun. Well, the book Overkill is out now. Uh, it will more more than likely join all the others as a, a, a raging success. Um, and uh, I don't know if they're going to make ten movies or twelve or fifteen movies 30. out of this. Thirty, uh, but I, I, you know, at least one probably. At least one, please God. At least one probably will be made <laughs> at some point. Um, and so we're looking forward to that because I I think I, I say this all the time that th there is a happy medium between trying to be uber serious like some spy fiction is which you actually run the risk of of making mistakes and them counting oh absolutely right because if you're trying to portray a narrative that's supposed to be real yeah and you're not and you have a safety on a glock yeah that's a problem you, you right? have a safety on a glock yeah. you're gonna hear from people that's a problem it. but if you know in this case I, I there's i get asked all the time what do you think about spy fiction i'm like well if they're not taking themselves too seriously i love it yeah but if they're they are and they screw up, then I'm the, I'm the worst. worst I'm them. the worst person to be around. I will never write yeah. a realistic spy well, novel based on that. Yeah, the, it's like a doctor in like a yeah, ER right. show or yeah, whatever. Right, but if right. you're having fun with it, I love it. And uh, and so I, I enjoyed. I've not I've read Overkill, but I certainly went back and t checked out some of the other ones. And no the characters a lot of fun. Um, and and so are the books and the stories. Uh, I, again, I just imagine you just like chuckling to yourself the entire time you're writing these. So, Ted, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Ted Bell is the author of now 10 consecutive New York Times bestsellers. The newest is Overkill. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time. I really enjoyed it, and I'm being totally honest about that. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. We appreciate it.